Junior Church is dismissed. If you'd like to turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to be concluding uh, just a mini-series that we've been doing on really what is the purpose of the church, really what is our purpose on this earth. In one very real sense, this lays out our purpose. Again, our primary purpose is to glorify God, but how does that work? How does that really happen? And I think Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 16, give us a real good understanding of that. Again, we've been, we named this series, I, I only named it from last week, but um, it's really E412. E412 is Ephesians 4.12. It all revolves around Ephesians 4.12. Kind of goes up to that as a pinnacle, and then from there the results. I would, I'd like to start making that a... a uh, a concept, as it were. Are we an E412 church? Are we for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ? Are we an E412 church? That's true body life. Uh, there's, a lot of, there's a number of models out there as far as what a church should be. Everything from pastor does everything to the people do everything. But sometimes in doing that, there's no real structure but again, I believe that E412, Ephesians 4.12, actually lays it out for the equipping of the saints, that's the elders, the pastors, for the work of ministry, that's all of us, for the edifying of the body of Christ, that's the goal, that's the goal. The late Howard Hendricks in his book, uh, Say It With Love, writes this, make no, make no mistake, the greatest curse on the church today is that we are expecting a small core of professionals, that's pastors, to get God's work done. And he, he emphasized, said, no way. But let me read that again. The greatest curse on the church today is that we are expecting a small core of pastors to get God's work done. No way. No way. That's, there's just no way. That's, that's what Howard Hendricks said was the greatest curse. Basically this, many times the body has not been mobilized. Every member is not doing its part. He goes on. Bud Wilkinson, former football coach at the University of Oklahoma, was in Dallas for a series of lectures on physical fitness. A TV reporter interviewed him about the president's physical fitness program and asked, this is what the, the reporter asked uh, the coach, Mr. Wilkinson, what would you say is the contribution of, of modern football to physical fitness? The reporter expected a lengthy speech. As if he had been waiting for 30 years for this question, he said, absolutely nothing. What is that? <laughs> All right, let me re rephrase. What does football have to do with your physical fitness? Absolutely nothing. The young reporter stared, squirmed, and finally stuttered. Would you care to elaborate on that? Wilkinson said, certainly. I define football as 22 men on the field who desperately need rest and 50,000 people in the stands who desperately need exercise. <laughs> Hendricks goes on and says, I thought to myself, what a definition of a church. A few compulsively active people running around the field while the mass of people rest in their stands. But not according to the Word of God. That's not what the Word of God says. So we ask, are you a spectator or are you one of the players? Are you participating in ministry or just watching other people do that? I, I'm very thankful. I believe that Alfred Allman, over the years, has taught 
and uh, we have worked together, and I do believe we have body ministry, but you can always, you can always improve, correct? Always improve. So again, E412, are we an E412 church? Are we what Christ, uh, are we, uh, what Christ wants us to be? Uh, again, we're going to be in Revelation in, in next week. And within a few weeks from there, we're going to be going through chapters 2 and 3 where he looks at the seven churches. And it's amazing how he's evaluating those churches. And that's what really got me to go to E412 first. <laughs> let's make sure we're the type of church that we need to be. So let's, let's just, uh, again, quickly review, get us up to verse 12, and then finish out the chapter uh, for our time today. The first is that we are called to the worthy walk. That's verse, found in verse 1. I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. It all starts there. That is literally a summary of chapters 1 through 3 in Ephesians. Because he talked about the calling, election, predestination. The fact is, is that God came and rescued us. He rescued you. And now Paul says, based on that tremendous truth that you have been rescued, you have placed your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as the only Savior, only Lord, based on that truth, there's something we need to do. By the way, I always have to stop at that point. Have you put your hope and your faith and your trust in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ? Or are you seeking to please God based on your own righteousness, which Isaiah says is as filthy rags? If you're saved, it's because of grace and grace alone, right? For by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's a what? The gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It's, it's pure grace. It's that God sent his son to be the sacrifice for us, and we have put our faith and trust in his sacrifice. And based on that, uh, righteousness has, as uh, Corinthians says, been imputed to us. It's been given to us. We stand in Christ's righteousness. Now, wouldn't it make sense that if a person understands grace, that we would want to walk worthy of that grace? See, some people say this, if grace is free, if it's free, if it's free gift, you're going to just live as you please. No, that, that should just drive you through love to say, Lord, I want to serve you because you have saved me by your grace. So walk worthy is the first. Then he gives you a number of attitudes that we should have as Christians. You see them in verse 2, lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, endeavoring to keep the unity. If you move to verse 7, though, because of all that Christ has done in our lives, he not only saves us, but he gifts us. Gives us gifts, verse 7, to each one of us. Grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So we see both the unity of the believer in verses 1 to 5 and the uniqueness of the believer, verses 7 through 10. So we are, we are unified, but our unity happens because we are also diversified. We have a uniqueness. We're, we're, we're all like snowflakes. We're all unique with our giftedness from God. Why that's important is this. Every person is needed in the body, i.e., you are needed in the body. Oh, but I'm only like 12 years old. Are there any 12-year-olds here, 14-year-olds? I'm just a young kid. I'm not really needed. You're saying the adults. No. Every person that's a believer in Jesus Christ is needed, absolutely needed. And that's why he gave the gifts, because that, that solidifies unity. It solidifies unity. Now, main point number three is verse 11. He himself gave some to be. And we looked at how he won the right to give gifts in uh, verses 8 to 10. 
And then he says, he himself, that's Christ. He himself, emphatic, Christ, the gift I have, the gift you have is from Jesus Christ himself. By the way, let's, let's be clear. Gifted not, gift, giftedness does not prove spirituality and it does not prove maturity. Right? Sometimes we think that because you're gifted in an area, well, all of a sudden you're spiritual. No. You're spiritual when you walk with God's spirit. Right? And you're mature when over time you've walked with God's spirit. Right? So just because you have a gift doesn't mean that you're spiritual. And in the sense of walking God, by God's spirit or that you're mature. You can have a pastor that's very immature that has the gift of teaching. <laughs> The point is, is that you have to walk with God's spirit. That's what makes you spiritual. And if you do that over many, many years, that makes you mature, right? Uh, spirituality times time equals maturity. Say it that way. So, but Christ gives gifts, gifted men to his church, verse 11. He himself gave some to be what? Apostles and prophets. We found in Ephesians 2.20 that that is a foundational work. And the apostles and prophets... And when I say apostles and prophets, capital A, capital P, apostles, prophets, are no longer, um, are no longer around, okay? Uh, <clears throat> there is no longer a need for apostles and prophets because the foundation of the church has been set. And when the word of God was finally uh, canonized, was finally complete, there's no longer needs, a need for apostles and prophets, but there is still a need for evangelists and pastors and teachers. So we see those. Evangelists would be the proclaimers of good news. Pastors and teachers. Again, pastor teachers uh, are elders, plural, in a church. You find them throughout Scripture in Ephesians and 1 Peter and other places. They're plural. So there's a group. But those are the gifts to the church. So you have not only individual gifts, but you have gifts to the church. And we find what the, what the re, what, what's the purpose of these evangelists and pastor teachers? Well, again, that's the 412. That's verse 12. For, that's purpose, the equipping of the saints. I know this is a review, but this is critical. If you don't get this, you, you'll miss everything else. Well, equipping. Well, again, it was used for, you know, mending a net, setting a bone, uh, outfitting a ship. What's the point? The point is this. Evangelists and pastor teachers come alongside to help everyone else in the body, and this is, I'm talking a local body, to be all that they ought to be before God. That's really the point. And you find Christians who are broken. They need to have their spiritual bones mended. I hope the elders of this church are good at, at mending spiritual bones, right? Getting them back into place. Um, fixing nets. Uh, lives that are tore, lives that are being un, uh, are unproductive. Why? Because of maybe sin, maybe because of discouragement, maybe because of depression, maybe because of how they view the world, maybe because of false teaching, whatever. Their lives are not productive. And pastors come along and get them back on the path of productivity. That's the whole point. The whole point is this. The pastor teachers, the evangelists come along and help all the saints to be productive for God. Because remember, we're all like snowflakes. We all have a gift. We all need to minister to one another. So it's a, it's a, it's a well, it's a perfect plan because uh, God presented it this way. The, the word equipping literally means to make complete, to make complete or to restore, to bring them to full usefulness, usefulness. 
And you might say, well, how does that work? Well, Ephesians 6.4 gives us the clue. In other words, what are the tools in my bag, or Lee and Mike, and what, are the, what do the evangelists and the pastor teachers have, the elders? How do we do this? How do we equip? Well, it's like, um, remember they, they, uh, they uh, called the seven, and the apostles said this, we will give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. That's really the tools. Prayer and the word. Prayer and the word. You want help to be, you want, you want mending, make sure we go to the word. You want to be restored, make sure you ask us even, are you praying for me? Right? Should, it's funny, it, it, not funny, but it's sad. Sometimes, in the, I, I've noticed, in, at least in, as me as a pastor, I, I'm so busy doing everything else, I don't have enough time to pray. And I have to actually say no to this and no to this. I've got to pray. That's what God's called me to do. Wasn't well, that kind of easy? Try it. Right? Is, is prayer work? Yeah, if you do it effectively. But that's, that's the tools. By the way, we are all supposed to be praying for one another. I'm not, I'm, and by the way, this is not to elevate the pastor. There is no hierarchy in the body. It, it's just like saying, um, I, I like to think of it as a husband and wife. I would never say that Benny is more important than Lenny. Oh, you would? Okay, well, you can. I'm not going to. <laughs> Right? I mean, right? He's awesome. He's awesome. Well, he's, oh, he just doesn't. Okay, now we don't want to get into marriage here. Is there equality in a marriage? Yeah. But there are different roles and responsibilities. That's all it is. There's equality, but there's different roles and responsibilities. When it comes to the church, the same, same thing plays out. There's equality, but there's different roles and responsibility. God has given certain men the responsibility to do the equipping, not that they're better. There is no hierarchy. I've got to keep saying that because immediately you might say, well, there's a hierarchy. No, there's no hierarchy. I can, I can guarantee that because there is such the thing called the priesthood of the believer. We are all in Christ. We stand at the same level in Christ, right? Isn't that true? So it's just that we have different, there's, but you have to see the difference as well. Oh, I see. God gave pastors, elders, bishops, however you want to say, same person, for the equipping so that we might all be productive, i.e., he's not doing it, they're not doing it all, and we need to get efficient and, and productive in, in, in our giftedness. And so I'm not going to give my responsibility to him. In fact, if he takes it, he's actually robbing me. Unfortunately, there's most churches, I think, are, are robbing the people of the ministry. Is that true? So, word and prayer. Now, again, God also uses us something else to mature us, and that's called trials and suffering. <laughs> but we, we've looked at that last week. Now, my wife was telling me we don't have anything up there, right? Yep. We're changing program. So if you want to see what I'm talking about, you've got to have your outline, which is in the bulletin. But I, I gave you last week the difference between equippers and servers. Equippers and servers. And this is where I ended pretty much. But notice the equipper, the first thing, focus their efforts on developing others to serve. That's why he has a smiley face. Because that pastor is doing what he's biblically called to do. He's developing others to serve. Versus the server. The server is this guy. The pastor who's supposed to be the equipper, but he just becomes a server. There's, there's a sad face there because he's doing it all. 
He's robbing the person of the ministry. He's therefore not pleasing to the Lord, and also the person that he's doing the ministry for is not pleasing to the Lord. In other words, that's not his job. Why? Because they focus their efforts on serving others directly. No, no, no. We, we've got to stop this thinking. Right? And I'm not saying you think this way because I know many of you are saying, yeah, amen, I understand what you're talking about. But we've got to make sure that, that the, the elders, in fact, this is the question I'm going to keep asking myself and the elders and the leadership, are we equipping? Let's make sure we're always equipping. Let me just skip down. We looked at a number of these. Third from the bottom, are motivated to identify others and delegate ministry to them versus finding it easier to do the job themselves than to train someone else. By the way, is it easier to, is it easier to just do the job yourself? Oh, you better believe it. I'm not saying this is easy. I mean, I have gone, and this has been a battle for me. I'm not, I just know that this is what God wants, and we have to become more and more. In fact, this is a good thing. I can keep you accountable, and you can keep me accountable. This is good. Look at the next one. Work themselves out of a job by replacing themselves with other equipped people. Now, again, we've got to be careful. If, if, it, if a pastor teacher, then it's, it's, it's obvious that, that a pastor should be continually teaching. Steve should not abdicate his responsibility to teach Lee, myself. But all these ministries that can be given over should be. Versus may leave a hole in ministry team when they leave. Why? Because they were doing it all. The last one, seek to identify, train, develop, coach, and support those in ministry. They're again equipping. Versus needed to be identified, needed, need to be identified, trained, developed. In other words, they're not doing that. We should be identifying, training, developing, coaching. We're, we're equal. There's no hierarchy. But we have to absolutely commit ourselves, knowing that Jesus Christ, like Revelation 2, walks among the church. He's watching. Are you doing what you're supposed to be doing? Are you accomplishing what I gave you to do? And if you're a, a, one of the leaders, are you doing exactly, or are you just making it easy on yourself and you're just doing the ministry yourself? Or maybe it's even worse. You're doing the ministry yourself because you're in a glory war and you just want the glory yourself. So we've got to make sure that we are serving Christ in the way that he wants. And notice what happens. Then they do the work of the ministry. Everyone else does the work of ministry. The work of service. Again, the members accomplish the serving of the church. The diaconi, that's where we get our word deacon. This is why this is interesting. You know, we have an official group of men, and I believe you can also have women, who are the official servants. And I keep thinking, why, why did they have two different offices? Bishops, pastors, and deacons. I think it's this, because you, the deacons, could you stand if you're a deacon? There's five of them. Just stand. Brian, Will, I saw uh, Steve, Dale, and I just saw Will. All right, five. Dale, that was quick. Did I ever tell you to sit down? I don't. Okay, whatever. But I, th- I think to myself this. They, it is so critical that you have serving, everyone serving in the church, that God even makes it an official office in First Timothy 3. To, and, and, you could, and I should be able to go like this to any one of our deacons. You want to see what a real servant looks like? Look at them. Because you know what? We're all called to do it because that's, that's the word, the work of service. You're all called to it. So if you have a question, I wonder what deacon really looks like, look at him, look at him, look at him, look at him, look at him. So again, very, very important. We're, the priesthood, 
of the believer. The entire church must be involved in the spiritual labor. Because why? If that happens, then the body is built up. The body is built up. And you might say, well, you know, how does that work? Well, that means that everybody has their giftedness, and now you're going to find people, not just the pastors, but everyone. You're going to find certain people doing the counseling, which we have. Certain people doing the leading, showing mercy, hospitality, sharing a meal, teaching, evangelism, helping, fellowship, community, giving. As 1 Corinthians 12 says, there are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And, and you just see this collage of people ministering to one another. By the way, one another and outside of the church. I don't want to ever, so we're in so and grow, oh, we all have our needs met. We should be reaching out, right? But what happens? Third stage, last part of verse 12. For the edifying of the body of Christ. Pastors, equip, restore, so that we all minister, and that's the only way that the body gets edified. In fact, if that middle piece is not there, and we're not all doing our ministries, then the body is lacking. The body is lacking. What I find interesting is when it comes to the saints doing the work of ministry, or all of us, that every member ministry like we've talked about, it's this, each imperfect, uniquely gifted believer helps promote the spiritual growth in other believers. I, I wrote that because I want you to think about it. Each of us are imperfect. Isn't that amazing? He uses imperfect people to help build his body. But Lord, I'm a sinner, right? I have failed, right? Doesn't give you the excuse, you know? Doesn't give any of us. We can all put our hand up for that one, right? We're all imperfect. We're all imperfect. And yet, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're all imperfect. We are, I am, and yet uniquely gifted like the snowflake. But I'm, don't you want me to get all this stuff taken care of in my life before I serve? No. No, I want you to serve. Like right now. So, the summary for this, up to this point is that God, for God to be glorified, the church has to be unified. And if the church is going to be unified, then shepherds need to teach, shepherd, lead, equip, so that each member does the work of service, and then the body is built up. That's the purpose. That's, that's what I would call the purpose-driven life. Many of you have done the purpose-driven life with Rick Warren. Well, that, that was a good book. But if you really want to know what's your purpose, that's your purpose. Your purpose is to serve. Through that, you grow. Through that, you suffer. Through that, you have trials. Through that, you're going to learn how to pray. You've got to serve. You've got to serve. Now, if that happens, look at verse 13. Verses 13 to 16 are the results of that happening. Many times this doesn't happen in a local church because verses 1 to 12 have not happened, especially verse 12. And let me read verses 13 to 16. Until we all come to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. That's the result. Till. Till. Let me just give you five. First of all, you're going to have a unity of faith. A unity of faith. Till we all come to the unity of faith. 
By the way, that's unity in the body. And the faith there is not just the act of believing. Sometimes, you know, you have to have faith in Christ. Yes, that is true. But that's not the... That's not what he's referring When he's using that word faith there, he's not referring to salvational faith. He's really talking about the body of Christian truth and doctrine. In other words, the unity of the faith is as we all grow towards the same truth. There is in our society tolerance. And to try to get unity, what they try to do in our society, and you see churches do this, They try to destroy the essentials. They make the essentials less and less and less and less. Well, you you know, you don't have to believe in Christ's second return. Ah, you don't have to believe he's a virgin born. You don't... So you're you're minimizing truth to try to get to the the least common denominator and that's going to cause unity. Actually, the Bible says exactly the opposite of that. You want to get unity in the faith? You know what you do? Teach strong doctrines. Teach doctrine. And have people move to the, the, the point, move to the point of truth. Unity is, is created when we all believe the same truth. Do you see the difference? Instead of knocking truth out, you exalt truth and bring everybody to that truth. That's the unity of the faith. Unity of the faith. In other words, to say it this way, unity or disunity Division and factions come from doctrinal ignorance and spiritual immaturity and disobedience. That's where disunity comes from. And what we need to have is uh, we need to uh, build unity on truth. Or to say it this way, I think I left this in your outline. Unity is built on the foundation of commonly believed truth. Not Not a tolerance to error, it's built towards truth. And, and so as you see the body of believers, not just the elders, but the body of believers working and truth is being built in a, into a local body, then we are moving towards unity as we move towards truth. And that's the first thing that Paul says. You're going to have the unity of faith. Unity of faith. Uh, I was going to go into this question then how is it that so many Christians think so, so differently about so many truths? Isn't that a good question? I thought it was. Uh, I'm not going to answer that for you today. <laughs> question mark. No. We're going to take that, we're going to do at least one entire sermon as we get into Revelation on that. Because if you don't have your hermeneutics right, and hermeneutics is the a, is a science of studying the Bible. If you don't understand hermeneutics, if you don't have your hermeneutics right, you will be lost all the time, especially in the book of Revelation, right? Like, in other words, if you don't go into Revelation thinking that this is going to be a normal, historical, grammatical interpretation, you will be lost every time. And then what Revelation becomes is this. Give me the dice, and I'm just going to do a crapshoot. And whatever I think, it will be my interpretation of that book. And yet, you should be able to go to Revelation just like you did Genesis 1, chapter, chapter 1, verses, well, chapters 1, 2, and 3. And have a normal interpretation and come out with, uh, excuse me, a, uh, yeah, normal uh, science of interpretation and come out with the right conclusion. So again, we're going to take this whole thing. But if you want to have unity of faith, this is what I'm trying to say. You've got to approach the Bible as normal literature. That's all I'm trying to say. And then you will come to the unity of the faith. 
It's the hermeneutics that, that goes bad, the science of Bible interpretation. But that's the first one, unity of faith. Look at the second thing. The body's working together. The, God, Bible, uh, the body is ministering to one another. You're going to have a deep knowledge of Christ and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Knowledge. That word knowledge is epigenosis. It means intimate, deep, thorough, precise knowledge. You're going to have a deep... As the body ministers to itself, you're going to have a deep experiential knowledge of the Son of God. Again, Son of Man, uh, when Christ referred to himself as the Son of Man, he was referring to his humanity. The Son of God refers to his deity. The body working together should create in each one of us a deep knowledge of Christ, a deep intimacy towards him. And again, you say, well, how does that work? Well, it, it works through us getting into the book. See, again, sometimes, as soon as I word, use that word intimacy or deep, some people try to say, well, you really can't get that from the Word of God. No, anything I'm talking about is found in the Word of God. We've got to get in the book. We've got to get into the Word of God. But as I fellowship with other of you believers, and I'll, I'll use the one that I find very uplifting to me every week, and that is men's prayer. As my life connects with other men, I find myself having a deeper relationship with Christ. That's what it should, right? That's what true fellowship is, by the way. True fellowship should drive me to the one that's the center, and that's Christ. So we go from a unity of faith to a deep knowledge of Christ. Let me say this. Knowledge should turn to heart devotion. Knowledge should turn to heart devotion. So this knowledge is not just intellectual. Oh, it has an intellectual component. But as I am fellowshipping and understanding God's word and praying, what's happening? My heart is moved towards Christ. Or you could say it this way, deep intimacy depends on shared values. Deep intimacy depends on shared values. And as I fellowship and as I learn about Christ, his values become my values. His concern for his people and his kingdom and his program and his plan becomes mine. That's, by the way, if you want to experience God, that's it right there. <laughs> yeah, okay. I'm doing his purposes. That's intimacy. That's a, a depth of knowledge. That's like with Paul. Do you remember what Paul said after walking with Jesus Christ for year after year and then writing many, many of the epistles? And now he finds himself in jail. And this is what the Apostle Paul, after many years of, of uh, walking with Jesus Christ, says in Philippians 3, verse 10, that I may know him, same word, same root word, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. What do you mean? In other words, in my life. And the fellowship of his suffering. In other words, as, as he has suffered and remained faithful, may it be of me being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And that last part, that I might attain, what he's getting at is he's saying, and that I might actually live the resurrected life, which I'm going to be able to, to live after I die. Let it be here. In other words, let me walk in your perfections. Not perfect, but in, other, in your perfections. Do you have that yearning that I might know him? You know, I, I look back and I say, boy, that's a, that, yeah, preach it, brother. That, that's easy to say. That is very, 
You'll know in your heart. Are you willing to forsake sin? Repent and go in a different direction because you know what? That I might know him. Do you find yourself faithful in the word of God and praying to him that I might know him? Again, I find it convicting that the apostle Paul, after years and years of walking with Jesus, still was able to say that I might know him. Lord, whatever it takes, I just want to know you better. Not salvation, my walk. Let me give you this. The beauty of the Lord, the glory of the Lord. I want to know your, you know, I want to be able to say I love you and I actually follow you. I can't say that at times. At times, you look at my life and like, wow, what a disaster. You thought that, you said that, you did that? Lord, that I might know you. Take that. You know, you know you're there when you're like this. You know, you're holding in your hands and you just go like this. Lord, and some of you are right there. You're, you're struggling back and forth. Your kingdom, his kingdom. And you know what he wants you to do, but you just keep. And then maybe it's not even that. It's like this. I got to have. It may not be something. It might be a relationship, whatever. Lord, it's yours. I just want to walk with you. You ever get that point? I'm so tired of it. I just want to walk with you. How about this? Number three. Perfect knowledge, which is point one, is, is as uh, Charles Hodge says, perfect, perfect holiness. Perfect knowledge should always lead to perfect holiness. Knowledge should lead to holiness. That's our third point, becoming like Christ. To a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Well, you, you knew that was going to have to be there. So do you see what's happening in these three things? We have the unity. Then we have a deeper understanding of Christ. But if you have a deeper understanding of Christ, that will transform you. You will become more like Jesus. You can't just get knowledge of Christ without being more like him. Otherwise, it's just intellectual. It's not true biblical knowledge. Because we know from Romans 8.29 that we were saved, quote, to be conformed to the image of his Son. He, the Father wants us to be Christ-like. The Father wants us to reflect Christ's perfections. So we're becoming more like him. When Paul says that I might know him, he's saying, yeah, and that I might be like him. You know, oh, the, what is uh, Galatians 5? Uh, the fruit of the Spirit. That's a good, that's a good uh, portrait of our Lord. Uh, love, joy, peace, what? Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Self-control, and I missed one, but you get the point. <laughs> right? Find yourself more loving, more patient, more kind, more joyous, more self-controlled, or do you find yourself less? Again, as I study, it should draw me to Christ, a greater love for him, but it also should draw, you should notice, as, we, as the body works, greater holiness. How about number four? Spiritual maturity and stability in the body. A pastor can't do it all. An elder can't do it all. The elders and deacons can't do it all. But as the body works together, there's greater maturity and stability. Verse 14, that we should no longer be children. That word children is nephpas, which is someone, it literally means this, one who does not talk. Think about the child that doesn't talk. How old is he? Zero to what? Three? I remember we had one of our kids. I won't tell you which one. We were actually concerned. 
my wife and I were like, man, not talking. This doesn't talk. You know, kind of grunts. Let me tell you, when that kid started talking, he never stopped. <laughs> but that's, that's the type of child that we're talking about. He says, listen, that we should no longer be like children, infants, one to three-year-olds. Stop being a one to three-year-old in the body of Christ. If you've been saved for any length of time, stop acting like children. Because what are children? Children are gullible. They're easily fooled. They're easily deceived. They're unstable. They're naive, right? You can promise a child anything. You can tell them anything. They believe you. That's why we need parents. Parents need to come along, guide them. By the way, no matter, let's make sure that, that you as a parent are guiding your children. Whether you send them to a home school, a public school, or a Christian school, just remember, you're finally responsible for guiding them, right? Again, what, what is here? Well, as a body of believers, kind of same thing. Parenting. We work together. Don't be children just tossed to and fro. Be, be an adult. Be mature. The apostles and prophets of the past and the evangelists and the pastor teachers of the present are given to bring the church from infancy to maturity. That's the whole point, infancy to maturity. I like what James Boyce said. The only real cure for spiritual infancy and immaturity is teaching, followed by teaching, and then still more teaching. End quote. What? Teaching from the Word of God. Right? I need the Word. If I'm going to go from infancy to maturity, I need the word. Why? Because if, if we don't mature and if you stay in your diapers and you've been saved for 25 years but you're still in your diapers, I've often wondered if the Lord will ever let us see that, you know? Oh, that person back there is still in their diapers. Look at what happens. They're carried away. About with what? Every wind of doctrine. Every new fad. Every new false teaching. They're on the bandwagon. And again, I've seen that. You've seen that. Every wind of doctrine. Maybe you've participated in it. Oh, look at this. By the trickery of men. That word trickery is the word that we get cube. It's cubia. Uh, What he's getting at is this. Religious shysters that just are playing off of Christians to get their money. Corinthians 2 says this, of false teachers, peddling the word of God. In other words, trying to make money from the people of God using the word of God. They come as religious tricksters. And then finally, in cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Crafty, manipulation. I think it's John MacArthur summarized this entire passage by this. This is a definite reference to planned, subtle, systematized error. And they're out there. They are all over the place, right? I mean, Corinthians chapter 11 says this. But I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by the craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit, which you've not received, or a different gospel, which you've not accepted, you may well put, it, put up with it. You may well put up with it. You might actually entertain it. He goes on and says, 
Well, Satan himself is an angel of light. Don't you expect that his, his servants, Satan's servants, are going to come as an angel of light? light? No one comes like this. Hey, false teacher. So when you open up the CD, CBD catalog, which is just full of false teachers, and you come to T.D. Jakes, just know that he only believes that there is one God and one person. He's modal. He's a heretic. Or, if you go to Joel Olstein, he's he at least made it easy. Your best life now? Where is that biblical? That's prosperity theology. Or if you go over and, God forbid you watch TBN, and watch Benny Hinn, who thinks that the sacrifice of Christ was paid to Satan. And that you can become a little God. See, just because it says Christian book distributor doesn't mean that everything in there is good. Know this. There is a lot of heresy out there. There's a lot of false doctrine out there. And I've just touched on it. The point is, it is definite reference to planned, subtle, systematized error. And what I've just told you, what is it? Attacks against the Bible? Against the person and work of Christ? You know, you can just... You know, and, and I'm not here just to name people. We could do that all day. It's like they say about a dollar bill, you know, how does a bank teach uh, the cashier what the counterfeit is? What is it? Remember how they do that? They get them to really understand what the true bill looks like. Feel, look. Then they become discerning. When the false comes through, whoop, that's not right. And I would hope that's how it is in your life. And then finally, as we wrap up, verse 15, but speaking the truth in love may grow up, cause to grow, <coughs> in all things into him who is the head Christ. So we, we get our marching orders from Christ. But this whole speaking the truth in love, this is not just for pastors to do, this is for all of us to do. Truth wedded to love. Truth wedded to love. Or literally it means truthing it in love. Truthing it. We have to truth it in love. We're called to truth it. Let me give you some examples. By the way, notice they are wedded together. Because if you have truth without love, it's just harsh orthodoxy. You ever meet someone that has the truth, but they don't do it in a loving way? They are out to destroy you. In fact, they're even finding pleasure in it. But if you have love without truth, then it's just mealy mouth, doesn't go anywhere. You've got to have truth with love. How can this play out in your life? Think about these ways that it could play out in your life. Think about the opportunity you have. I, I always find it interesting how God knocks on my heart, call that person, speak to that person. Now we've even text that person. I used to think that was so impersonal. Text, don't text me, call me. I am finding that that is more effective. Really? Just recently, I texted somebody. I couldn't believe the response. It was so positive. I just texted him. It took like five minutes. It takes me five minutes because I can't quite. <laughs> I love watching my kids. You know, they're like at the dinner table. What are you doing at the dinner table? You know, <laughs> I feel like they're. <laughs> yeah. See, it might, be a pers- it might be a phone call. It might be some of you ladies write wonderful encouragement notes. Text, emails. The point is connection. One-on-one. Let me give you some. Sarah's teenage daughter is having real problems. This is what it means to truth it. 
truth wedded with love. Sarah's teenage daughter is having a real problem at high school. And as they talk about it, she reassures her that God is stronger and more faithful than any friend and prays with her. Is that truth in love? Yeah. How about this one? Bill is chatting with George after church and shares with him how encouraged he was by a particular passage he had been studying this past week. I think we need to do that more. Let the word of God hit you and tell someone else. That's encouraging. Wow, God's working in you. And I might not even get what exactly you're saying, but man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to investigate that. Another one. Michael meets one-on-one every Tuesday for breakfast with a friend, Steve, who is a new Christian. They use the Navigator series of, on discipleship to work through some of the basic issues of living the Christian life. Speaking the truth in love. Allison is worried about her friend Debbie, who struggles with anxiety and fear and has been missing church quite a bit. Allison writes her a one-page letter offering encouragement, quoting a few Bible verses, and offering to get together with her for prayer. Speaking the truth in love. Jake has a friend, Ned, that has struggled for years with pornography. He has begun a weekly Bible study with him on what the Bible says about that particular sin and how to be free from it. He is, also, he is also holding him accountable so that if he falls, he can lovingly confront him on the steps he needs to take. All right? That's love. How about this one? Warren goes to a men's study group each week at Jim's house with six other guys. He makes sure that he has read and thought about the passage before he goes and prays that God would help him to say true and encouraging things to the group. Irene is quite elderly and finds it hard to get out, but she phones her friend Jean every other day, talks with her about a Bible passage she has been reading that morning, and prays with her over the phone. Let me stop there. Prays with her over... You ever pray with someone over the phone? Actually, Donna, you're the one that taught me that. Well, I don't know. One time you did it for me, and from that point on, I've... I've I, I have done that for my grandfather over and over. And, and I'll tell you, it's such a great blessing. And it's just a microcosm of, you know, you're talking to someone, you know what you need to do? Hey, let's just pray right here. Not like you're driving, you're not going to get in a wreck. Claire has been praying for her friend Shirley for months and finally invites her to an evangelistic evening at her church that her church is running. On the way home in the car, Claire talks to Shirley about the message and does her best to answer Shirley's questions. Trevor rearranges his work schedule so that he can take Wednesday afternoon off to teach a Bible club class in in the local primary school. He and his wife end up doing this for years and have had, had an enormous impact on the lives of kids and teachers at their school. Two final ones. Rita has a friend, Brenda, who is married, but seems infatuated with her male co-worker. Rita suspects this from the conversation she has had with her for the last three months. She is planning on confirming her suspicions over breakfast on Saturday, and if true, lovingly confronting her. See, some of us would just look at that, well, she's going the wrong direction. I hope not. And finally, at Phil's church, they take a few minutes during Sunday morning for a member to give a testimony or two to bring encouraging word to the congregation. This Sunday is Phil's turn, and he tells how teaching on Ephesians 5 has turned his marriage around. See, those are all some, some examples of speaking the truth in love. 
Those are examples of every member ministry. And look at what happens as we close. Verse 16. Verse 16. From whom the whole body, every member ministering, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share. What happened? Causes growth, quantity and quality, of the body for the edifying of itself in love. You see how in the very end he says, listen, and when this all happens, look what happens. We are all built up. We are all built up. We need each other. I need you and you need me, right? And thankfully we've been placed in the body of Christ by the sacrifice of Christ, receiving him. But we can never walk away from that responsibility. And, and I would ask this, as we, as we stand right now and as we sing, question, are you... A spectator, are you the player? Are you involved in ministry or just watching other people doing? I trust that you're involved, and you would even say this, and I want to become more involved. Because the heartbeat of Christ is the local church. The heartbeat of Jesus Christ is the church of Christ. We want to be about his business.